bubbling streams, nature sounds, sound of birds. Excellent background for our next story from my mother's favorite song. This is called Forgiveness is Good News. One of the classic contradictions that I face as a minister, especially in my counseling work, is created by the contact I have with two diametrical opposed classes of people. The first class is made up of those who have successfully rationalized and justified their sins. They have convinced themselves that they are good, decent, moral, upright citizens because they keep their grass mowed, their cars washed, support the Girl Scouts and Little League, and attend PTA. It is inconceivable to them that God will have any less of an opinion of them when than they have of themselves. So they feel little, if any, need for salvation or forgiveness. Disillusioning them is not only unpleasant, it is often impossible. The second is their anti-theosis. These people are so overwhelmed by futility created by a growing sense of lostness and what it means to be lost, so painfully aware of their sinfulness and culpability that they despair over both God's ability and willingness to forgive them. You don't understand what I've done. What a rich, miserable, low-life sinner I am, they say. There is far more hope for this second group than the first. Conviction of sin is evidence of the acceptance of the work of the Holy Spirit. My task with them is not only far more pleasant because the gospel really is good news to them, it is far more successful. I tell them that the gospel was not preached immediately following the flood when the people were new and true and few. It was preached in the course of an ongoing history. It was shouted in the noisy streets of the major centers of commerce to soldiers, lawyers, sorcerers, prostitutes, politicians, tradesmen, and merchants, to people who were exceedingly wicked. It was whispered in the quiet walkways of small towns and villages to slaves, grape owners, farmers, shepherds, fishermen, housewives, and churchgoers, to people who were no less wicked, but less spectacularly so. Perhaps Paul's reminder to the Corinthian Christian that they had once been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, and swindlers give us some indication of the type of folk who respond to the gospel. The people who heard the gospel were, were adults, adults with a heritage, environmental, social, historical, and personal. That heritage was different in every community, nation, and individual. And yet, the gospel had a neutralizing effect on all who responded. The gospel did not snatch from them the realities of their past. It made the past inconsequential. So Paul could simply wipe out 10 million sins by saying, But you were washed. But you were washed. Those folks had to find a way to live honestly with their past and a new way to live in the present. The gospel provided that way. The gospel was intended to save the people of the first century. 
God did not have to wait two or three hundred years until some new generation could get everything right before he could save a few. Neither was the gospel to be preached to some select group who had had providential not messed up their lives to the point that salvation was at best impractical or at worst impossible. My first point is that the gospel has power to save, to save today, to save immediately, to bring assurance, forgiveness, sonship, and peace with God, none of which are predicted upon a person's ability or determination to begin immediately to go back and make right their history of sin. That simply cannot be done. My second point is so simple that I almost embarrassed to write it. God really wants to save us. He genuinely loves us. And up to that point of violating our ability to choose, He has done everything possible to make redemption feasible for every person who seeks after it. This vital truth brings a whole new attitude towards God's teaching. God seeks our good our happiness. He did not set up a diabolical scheme that promises hope and happiness and then creates conditions so difficult or complex that no one would ever be able to attain it. Anyone who really wants to be forgiven can be. The gospel has the power to do it. I am familiar with our Lord's statement that The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And I am prepared to accept that statement at face value. I would only say that we need to examine why that is so. It is not because the top of or accumulation of our sins is so massive and complex that redemption and forgiveness are impossible due to some deficiency in the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. It is not because God's plans requires us to perform the Herculean task of correcting all our past mistakes. It is because our pride is so great that we will not acknowledge our wretchedness, lostness, and helplessness, neither will we accept His grace. It is because our love affair with sin is so great that we will not give it up. And that is the chapter on forgiveness. Our next one is evaluation. Several years ago, I received a letter from the principal of the high school where I used to teach. When I taught there, he wasn't the principal. He was a teacher. He has since been demoted from the ranks of the useful to the useless. It is altogether too bad because he was a fine teacher, and I feel sorry for him. He wrote to say that a former student of mine had come to his office recently on a very painful mission and that the student had requested that he contact me concerning the subject of his visit. I never cease to be amazed at the providential workings of God. This is the story. Often one of the most disconcerting aspects of teaching is student evaluations. They take place twice every year, somewhere near the end of each semester. The students are handed a form with questions on it and they are asked to respond. The questions are of this nature. 
One, the teacher was prepared, sometimes, rarely, always. Two, the teacher graded fairly, sometimes, rarely, always. Three, the work assignments were reasonable, sometimes, rarely, always. Four, I received the grades I deserve, sometimes, rarely, always. Five, the class was stimulating and enjoyable, sometimes, rarely, always. The, studer, the students circled the most appropriate respond, respond and add comments if they wish. Most teachers try to act if they don't care, and I suppose it's true that some don't. But the good ones do. They care a lot. Good teachers await evaluation day with trepidation and anxiety because these students' expressions are a critical factor in determining how successful they have been in some important areas. Student evaluations tell more than anything else if they like you and if they respect you. Both of those things, whether we want to admit it or not, have much to do with how much they learn and how well they learned it. I have had my share of anxiety and some of it of it was fully justified students can be brutal some of them took a shot at me and scored heavily it's their one chance to get even to settle old scores and there will always be those who take full advantage sometimes you know it's coming and you tell yourself that being ripped by the student is an honor but even then it hurts because it's a sure sign of failure even though it may not be your fault. I had a brilliant student once. His name was John. In my teaching career, spanning some 20 years, I have only had about eight or 10 brilliant ones. So I remember them. Unlike many folks, I use the word brilliant very selectively so that the noun, adjective, or adverb form retains some meaning. What I'm saying is that some folks, particularly parents, politicians, and principals, apply the word brilliant to every kid they see. The consequence is that it means absolutely nothing. John was so far ahead of his classmates in every area that it almost impossible to keep him busy, much less motivated. I tried very hard and felt that I had done reasonably well. But even more than that, I thought I had established a solid personal relationship with him. I thought we liked each other. Not long before evaluation time, I gave John a low grade on an essay test. At least it was low for him. I think it was a C and he was incensed he never got a C. He told me that I had given him much better grace to students who had done poorly compared to him. I explained that I expected much more from him than I did from some of the others, and that since he had obviously put little effort into his paper, I had rewarded him accordingly. He said that I had no right to treat him differently, that it was unfair. I told him that I had every right to do so, that it was my duty, and that he had given every indication that he wanted to be treated differently. And as for Fairness, I, I wasn't too concerned with it, and if he expected to be treated fairly in the world, he was in for a big surprise. On the teacher evaluation form, he killed me. 
gave me the poorest marks possible, wrote derogatory comments, and even signed his name, which wasn't required. It really hurt me. I was a long time recovering, and even then, it left a sensitive scar on my soul that twinged every time evaluations were due. We never talked about it. He seemed determined to avoid me after that and never signed up for another of my classes. I felt that it would be inappropriate for me to approach him. A year later, he graduated with highest possible honors and went to college on an academic scholarship. He came back once or twice for some of the annual school events, and I would see him from a distance, and then I moved far away. Seven years passed. The principal told me that John had just walked into his office one day completely unannounced and told him the story of the evaluation. He said that it had burdened his heart during his entire college career and that it simply would not leave him. He said that every time he returned home, it was difficult for him to come back to his old school, so filled with happy memories except for one that plagued him and kept him from enjoying the rest. He said that he had done a mean, despicable thing in a moment of anger, and now he wished to undo it because he would sleep. He wouldn't sleep well or be at peace until it was off his mind and my record. He said it probably wouldn't make any difference after so long except to him and to me. He said that I had served him well, had told him the truth, which few people had done, and that he had learned a lot over the last seven years that had given him a different view on many things. The evaluation was retrieved and he wrote a new one. The young man left the principal's office greatly relieved and I received the principal's letters with much gratitude. Would you like to retrieve an evaluation you have written perhaps in a moment of anger and write a new one? Are there some shadows hanging over your life that you would like to clear away so that you may sleep peacefully? Have you resented someone for telling you the truth? In a lifetime of human happy memories, are there a few bad ones that keep you from enjoying the others? What keeps you from doing it? Is your pride so great that a lifetime of regret is worth more than a moment of humility? May God forgive you. It is possible that you have learned some things you made the evaluation, things that have changed your perspective. Maybe it was a spoken evaluation or even a mental one. How much peace and joy could you bring to someone's life and to your own by retrieving it? Don't think about it. That will get you nowhere. Do it. For the love of God, do it. For Jesus' sake, do it. For your dear family's sake and for your own soul's sake, do it. Do it now. Pick up the phone. Get some paper and pen. And do it. Oh, you say, I couldn't do that. You don't understand. It is much too complicated. It is that you cannot or it is that you will not. Beautiful, beautiful words of life.
the great gift. Christmas is a time for giving and receiving. It is also time for forgiving because that's what God did at Christmas. He forgave us when we didn't even know we needed it. He forgave us through Jesus. Christmas is also a time that calls for insight and understanding because without those things, the real meaning will be lost in the noise and hustle. This is a story about Christmas, about giving and receiving, about insight and understanding, and about forgiveness. This is a Christmas story, and you must never lose sight for the central fact that without Christmas, without the spirit of humility and goodwill generated by our awareness of His coming, this story could not have happened. You must be both a child and an adult to understand this story. In 1949, I was in the seventh grade at Mary Lynn Junior High School in Royal Oak, Michigan. My parents were having a difficult time financially, which was nothing new. But I found myself needing money occasionally, which was something new for me. I mean, I had never needed money before. I wouldn't have known what to spend it on. But now I knew because I have discovered girls. I decided to get a paper route. I got a route delivering the Detroit Free Press. I picked up my papers at 5.30 a.m. and delivered them until about 7.15. I hated getting up in the winter months, especially because it was totally dark the whole time, bitterly cold, and I couldn't ride my bike because of the snow and ice. But I earned the princely sum of $8 per week when I could collect from my customers, that is, which was almost never. Of course, my customers weren't up when I delivered my papers, which always made me wonder, I mean, why does a person want a paper at 5.30 in the morning when they don't get up until 7.30? Anyway, in order to collect, I had to try to catch them in the evening. One of the places I delivered was an apartment building of several stories. Most single people lived there, and they were rarely at home. The Christmas of 1949 was a particularly bad time financially and relational at home. I didn't know how very bad it was till much later. My mom and dad weren't getting along at all, and we had taken in boarders to supplement our income. Some of them were alcoholics. Occasionally, we find one sleeping in the bathtub, and not only did they keep up at night with their shouting, keep us up, they didn't pay their rent. This made matters worse between my folks because my dad would feel sorry for them and wouldn't insist that they either pay or move out, which made my mother furious. She says she wished he would feel sorry for her sometimes. At Christmas time, we didn't have a tree. My dad has had as much pride as anybody, I suppose, so he wouldn't just say that we couldn't afford one. When I mentioned that, my mother said that we weren't going to have one this year, that we couldn't afford one, even if we could. It was stupid to clutter up your house with a dead tree. She was very cross and spoke sharply, which was unusual for her. So I didn't bring it up anymore. I wanted a tree badly, though, and I thought in my nay way, that if we had one, everybody would feel better. 
About three days before Christmas, I was out collecting for my paper route. It was fairly late, long after dark. It was snowing and very cold. I went to the apartment building to try to catch a customer who hadn't paid for me for nearly two months. She owed me $7. Much of my surprise, she was home. She invited me in, and not only did she pay me, she gave me a dollar tip. It was a windfall for me. I now had eight whole dollars. What happened next was providential because I had absolutely no plan or intention of doing what I did. On the way home, I walked past a Christmas tree lot and the idea hit me. The selection wasn't very good because it was so close to the holidays, but there was this one real nice tree. It had been a very expensive tree and no one had bought it. Now it was so close to Christmas that the man was afraid no one would. He wanted $10 for it, but when I, I, in my gullible innocence, told him I only had eight, he said he might sell it for that. I really didn't want to spend the whole $8 on the tree, but it was so pretty that I finally agreed. I dragged it all the way home, about a mile, I think, and I tried hard not to damage or break off any limbs. The snow helped to cushion it, and it was still pretty good shape. In. When I got home, you can imagine how proud and excited I was. I popped it up against the railing of our front porch and went in. My heart was bursting as I announced that I had surprised. I got Mom and Dad to come to the front door, and when I switched on the poor light, there was our Christmas tree with the snow glistening on its branches. Our beautiful Christmas tree I have saved the day. Where did you get that tree? My mother exclaimed. But it wasn't the kind of explanation that indicates pleasure. I bought it up on Main Street, Mom. It's just the most perfect tree you ever saw. I said, trying to maintain my enthusiasm. Where did you get the money? Her tone was accusing and it began to dot on me that this wasn't going to turn out as I had planned. From my paper route, I explained about the customer who had paid me. And you spent the whole $8 on this tree, she explained. She went into a tirade about how stupid it was to spend my money on a dumb tree that would be thrown out and burned in a few days. She told me how irresponsible I was and how I was just like my dad with all those foolish, romantic, novel noble notions about fairy tales and happy endings that it was about time I grew up and learned some sense about the realities of life and how to take care of money and spend it on things that were needed and not on silly things. She said that I was going to end up in a poorhouse because I believed in stupid things like Christmas trees, things that didn't amount to anything. I just stood there. My mother had never talked to me like that before, and I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. I felt awful, and I began to cry. I didn't want to cry, but she was so angry, and her words were just pouring out in a strain that she couldn't seem to stop. Finally, she reached out and snapped off the porch light. Leave it there, she said. Leave that tree there till it rots. So every time we see it, we'll be reminded of how stupid the men in this family are. Then she stormed up the stairs to her bedroom 
and we didn't see her until the next day. My dad tried hard to patch things up. He said that mom wasn't feeling too good and made all kinds of excuses for her. He said that I should take what she said. I shouldn't take things too seriously. He said it was just a bad time and that she would be better tomorrow. But he was wrong. She wasn't better. He and I brought the tree in and we made a stand for it. He got out the box of ornaments and we decorated in the best that we could. But men aren't too good at things like that. And besides, it wasn't the same without mom. There were a few presents under it by Christmas Day. Although I can't remember a single one of them, my mom wouldn't have anything to do with it. It was the worst Christmas I ever had. The happiest day of the season was the day after Christmas when Dad said he thought it would be best if we took the tree down. We never took our tree down until after New Year's Day, but I didn't argue. I was glad to take it down and get it out of my sight. We burned it in the backyard. Mom never said anything more about it, good or bad, but it was a scar on my soul, and I never forget. Judy and I married in August of 1963, and Dad died on October 10 of that year. Over the next seven years, we lived in many places. Mom sort of divided up the year, either living with my sister Jerry or with us. In 1971, we were living in Wichita, Kansas. Lincoln was about seven. Brandon was three, and Kristen was a baby. Mom was staying with us during the holidays of Christmas Eve, I stayed up very late. Judy and the kids had long since gone to bed with visions of sugar plum dancing in their heads. I was sitting in the living room staring into the blinking lights of our tree and reading Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. I looked at all the presents and relieved all the Christmases of my past, relived them. I was totally alone with my thoughts alternating between joy and melancholy, and I got to thinking about my paper route, that tree, when my mother had said to me, and how Dad tried to make things better. I heard a noise in the kitchen and discovered that it was Mom. She couldn't sleep either, and I had gone up to make herself a cup of hot tea, which was her remedy for just about everything. As she waited for the water to boil, she walked into the living room and discovered me there. She didn't say much for a while. She just sat and gazed at the tree, the blinking lights and all the presents, many of which were from her to her children. She saw me. She saw my open Bible and asked me what I was reading. When I told her, she asked if it would read it to her, and and I did. How is this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Read it to me in the King James. She said this was no time to argue the merits of translations. And besides, I like to read out of the King James myself. Sometimes I went and got my King James and read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. I saw her nod of affirmation of the familiar words. That's better, she said. And now it was you know, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When the kettle began to whistle, she went and made her tea. She came back and we started to visit. I told her how happy I was that she was with us for Christmas and how I wish a dad would have lived to see this grandchildren and to enjoy this time because he always loved Christmas. So I got very quiet for a moment and then said, do you remember that time on 12 mile row when you bought that tree with your paper route money as a little kid? Yes, I said, I just been thinking about it. She hesitated for a long moment. I thought she were on the verge of something that would bottle up so deeply inside her soul that it might take surgery to get it out. Finally, great tears started down her face and she cried. Oh, son, son, please forgive me. That time and that Christmas has been a burden on my heart for 25 years. I wish your dad were here so I could tell him how sorry I am for what I did. Your dad was a good man and it turned me and it hurts me to know that he went to his grave without ever hearing me say that I was sorry. Nothing will ever make what I take, I said, right. But you need to know that your dad never did have any money since, which was all true. We were fighting all the time, though not in front of you. We were two months behind on our house payments we had no money for groceries. Your dad was talking about going back to Arkansas and the tree was the last straw. I took it all out on you. It doesn't make that what I did right, but I hope that someday when you were older, you would understand and I wanted to say something forever so long and I'm so glad it is finally out. Well, we both cried a little and held each other and I forgave her. It wasn't hard, you know. Then we talked for a long time, and I did understand. I saw that I have never seen, and the bitterness, the sadness that had gathered up in me for all those years gradually washed away. It was a marvelous and simple. The great gifts of this season, or any season, can be put under the tree. You can't wear them, or eat them, or drive them, or play with them. We spend so much time on the lesser gifts Toys, sweaters, jewelry, and mine assets, and did all for Christmas. And so little on the great gifts. The understanding, great peace, grace, forgiveness. It's no wonder that the holiday leaves us empty because there, when it's over, the only remark we have is the dirty dishes and the January bills. The great gifts are like the one gift, the gift that begins it all back there in Bethlehem in Judea. You can't buy them and they're not on anybody's shopping list. They come as he comes briefly, unexpectedly and freely, quietly. And if you're not careful, you miss them entirely because the want list keeps you at the small where the holiday sales. The want list keeps you at the mall. Tinsel, background music, and litter keep you from seeing the stars of Bethlehem or hearing the angels' songs. How silently, how silently the wonderful gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heart, of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in the world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, 
the dear Christ enters in, O little town of Bethlehem. Reading from the book, My Mother's Favorite Song by John Williams Smith. And our next story is called The Neighborhood Moochers. Neighborhood Moochers. The category is forgiveness. About two months ago, I was talking to a close relative of mine who still lives in the same area of Michigan where I was raised. He goes to church where my parents and I went. He asked me if I remember a lady named Norma who had lived right down the street from them. It took me a moment to respond because I remember her all too well. But I finally managed to a weak affirmation. He said that she had died a week or two earlier. I was sorry to hear it. Norma played a very important role in my growing up. She didn't plan to. God just providentially used her for that purpose. I suppose that since both she and my parents are gone, I ought to tell this story for my children and for yours, although it is very embarrassing to me. When I was 12, our family finances got so bad that we moved into a cabin in an old trailer park at the corner of 12 Mile Road and Crooks Road. Originally, these cabins had been built as the procurers of motels as a place for travelers to spend the night. As the town had spread out around them and travelers no longer came that way, the cabins fell into disuse so that owners decided to rent them out by the month. My dad operated a standard oil gas station right across the street, so it was a convenient place for us to live. I soon made friends with other boys in the trailer park named Don. In most ways, we had a little in common. We were drawn together by our age, physical proximity, our mutual poverty, and our love for baseball. We were baseball fanatics. We played at every opportunity, and when we couldn't find a game, we played catch in the trailer park. When dark came, we would play catch near the office lights of the trailer park until the residents got tired of the noise of the ball splatting in our gloves and drove us off. Then we would go and pursue our baseball cards. We had hundreds of them. We knew the names, positions, batting average, and ERAs of every Detroit Tiger player. When, when the neighborhood kids played, it was sort of an understood that we would take turns supplying a ball. Don and I never did supply because we never had a decent ball, and our friends constantly reminded us of the fact they called us the neighborhood moochers. When we showed up to play, they would say, here comes the neighborhood moochers. <laughs> For those of you who may not know the word moocher, it's another way of calling a person a bum or beggar. Don and I would go to the high school field and spend long hours on Saturday looking for stray balls. The ones we found were always in sorry condition. The stitches were frayed or loose and the covers were torn. We tried to hide a multitude of sins with black electrical tape, but the results were very dissatisfying. 
we began to talk about how great it would be to see the looks on our friends' faces as we showed up with a brand new ball, especially a reach. That was the kind the Tigers played with. They had them at Montgomery Ward, but they were two seventy-five. It might as well have been a hundred dollars, but we couldn't get it out of our minds or our conversations. We didn't like to to be called bums or moochers by our friends. We would walk to Royal Oak and go to Montgomery Ward to look at the baseballs. We would pick up the display model and lovingly caress the smooth white horsehide covered fingered the flawless red stitch admire the dark blue reach printed on the side and imagine ourselves hitting home runs and throwing blazing fastballs it would have not occurred to me to steal one at least not seriously my home life and religious training had created inhibitions far too deep for that but don was not religious and the only reservation he had were limited to the possibilities of getting caught. He mentioned it often. I would not consider it. Then he made a suggestion that allowed me to rationalize my reserves. He said he would actually steal the ball. I would only divert the sales clerk. I thought that I could do that, so I went along. But I knew better. I did my job. I diverted the sales clerk by pretending to be interested in some article far away from the baseballs. Don had on a jacket, and he slipped the ball underneath his jacket and under his armpit and walked out of the store. In a couple of minutes, I followed. As I made my way up the stairs, I heard a familiar female voice call my name. I turned, and there stood Norma, a lady who went to church with us. She asked me to come back down and talk with her. I didn't want to, but I went. She asked me what I was doing at the store. I was so flustered and nervous that I couldn't say anything. She told me that she was a store detective and that she had seen Don take the baseball and I knew that I, she knew that I had helped him. I tried at first to explain the harmless of my involvement, but it was no use. I was just as guilty as Don and we both knew it. There are no words to adequately describe all the feelings that poured over me in a moment of time. What this would mean to my family, the church, my friends. She told me to go and get Don and to bring him the ball back. He was standing outside flushed with excitement because we had gotten away with it. When I told him we hadn't, he wanted to run. He said no one could catch us, but I knew there was no place for me to run to. I told him we had to go back. He wouldn't go, but he gave me the ball and said I could go back if I wanted to, and he took off. Like a sheep to the slaughter, I went back. I told Norma that Don had run away. She said that she didn't care about him, but she just couldn't understand how I could do such a thing. I didn't understand it either. I really didn't because I didn't know how much more about sin and how it creeps up on a person, how it takes advantage of every weakness and exploits every desire until we find a new way of doing it that doesn't seem that bad. We talked for a long time, and I cried. She did too. I wonder what she was going to do with me. When we finished talking, she just 
sat sort of hunched over with her chin resting on her hand. She looked at me for a long time, like she was having trouble making up her mind. She finally straightened up and sighed a great big long one, like she had been holding her breath for about 10 minutes, which let me know she had made up her mind. She reached out and took me by the chin, and she held my face right up to hers and made me look straight into her eyes, and she said, Johnny, just go home, and don't you ever let me catch you in this store without your parents ever again. This will stay between the two of us. I don't remember ever going back into Montgomery Wars ever again, not even with my parents. If they went there to shop, I made some excuse to stay outside, and I still don't shop at Montgomery Ward without looking over my shoulder for Norma. When I think of forgiveness, of the inexpressible delight there is in pardon, I think of that experience. Now I have grown older and much more discreet about stealing baseballs. My justification and rationalization are much more elaborate but it always ends up the same way. I hear a familiar voice calling my name, and that rush of confusion, guilt, and shame comes over me because I know I am caught once again. I heard the voice say, What are you doing in this store? And at first I try to explain the harmlessness of my involvement. I give it all of the standard excuses, but it's no good. We both know. Did you think you could get away with that? When are you going to learn? I saw you do it. And then we talk and cry. So does he. And I wonder what he's going to do with me. It's not jail this time. Not a criminal record. It's not my reputation or the church or even my family that I'm worried about. No. This is the big one. I could go to hell for this. He sits hunched over his chair, his head resting on his hand, and he looks at me as though he's trying to make up his mind. Finally, he strains up and lets out a sigh, a big one, and I know he's made up his mind. He reaches out and takes me by the chin, and he makes me look straight into his eyes and says, Johnny, I forgive you. Go home, and don't you ever let me catch you in this store again, unless I'm with you. Amen. Greetings. Welcome. Today, I'm going to be reading a story about Come to the table. Come to the table. Karen Noble locked the door to her dream home in High Point, North Carolina for the last time. Before the moving truck pulled away, she gazed at the 17 acres which had been an oasis for her and her family for years. Jim, her husband, was an amazing chef and restaurant who had run numerous successful restaurants. Amen. Who would have imagined that the attack on the Twin Towers in New York City's World Trade Center would take the foundations of the restaurant business? 
Who could have guessed that people would hunker down at home eating out less? She and Jim had incurred massive debt trying to keep their restaurants in business. Now, in 2004, the Lord had told them to sell their home and land and move into a neighborhood in Charlton, North Carolina. They had been advised to declare bankruptcy, but refused. While their situation looked hopeless, Jim and Karen knew better. Their faith in God had taught them better. In 1994, their two-week-old daughter, Olivia, had been diagnosed with encephalitis. Her situation, doctors said, was hopeless. Karen remembers being in the hospital with Olivia when she started having seizures. Then she coded. The doctors were able to assistate her, but even so, Olivia wouldn't live. They were told it was hopeless. Then someone tell them the truth about healing. A different kind of restaurant. Karen turned to look in the back seat and smile at their two young daughters, Margux and Olivia, making sure their seatbelts were buckled before driving to their new life in Charleston. Sure, they were millions of dollars in debt, but Jim and Karen no longer believe in hopelessness. Somehow, they would pay it all off. Once she got everything settled in their new house, Karen curled up on the sofa to read Southern Living Magazine. She read about a restaurant in Louisiana that employed at-risk youth. Couldn't they do something similar? When Karen asked what I thought about opening a restaurant that employed at-risk people, I love the idea, Jim says. The word restaurant comes from the French word restaurer which means to restore. I believe that's why Jesus enjoys sitting around the table with his disciples. It was a form of restoration. We know we wanted to restore the homeless, those in poverty, and people with substance abuse issues. We wanted to do something like the restaurant in Louisiana had done, but there was a major difference. They were funded by the Catholic Church. At that time, we had no support as KCM partners for years, when we attended the ministry conference, the only other minister we met who was working outside the church was Nancy Alcorn. She had funded Mercy Ministries of America, providing homes for troubled girls in four different locations. We adopted her model, no government assistance and no debt. Soon after that, Carolyn. Carolina Panthers, a professional football team here in Charlotte, asked if we had a project that they could partner with us to accomplish. When we described our plan, they loved it. The industry changed drastically after 9-11, and we lost a lot of money. For a couple of years, just to keep the restaurants in business, we didn't take a salary. I had owned four restaurants, but during that transition, I closed two of them. I had a fine dining restaurant in Charlotte, and in 2006, we opened Rooster's Wood Fire Kitchen. Unlike other businesses, Jim and Karen wanted their new King's Kitchen to be located in Uptown Charlotte. While it was the most expensive real estate, it was also where most of the homeless congregated. In the summer of 2009, Jim founded a restaurant in their target area that was going out of business. They were asking 400000 for it. In keeping with their decision not to go in debt, Jim asked Karen to pray and get a number from God about how much to offer. 
The Lord gave her 45,000. Karen told him, that's a low number, Jim said. Don't you want to round it up to 50,000? The number the Lord gave me was 45,000, Karen replied. Jim called the real estate broker, offer them 45,000. Wow, they're going to get mad, the broker told him. Don't you want at least to round it to 50,000? No, that's our offer. As expected, the offer made the owners angry. They refused to consider it. Believe they heard from God. Jim and Karen held their ground and stood in faith. Four months later, in 2009, the owners dropped the price to 200000 Our offer is still 45000 Jim said. <laughs> Karen's response, it was refused. The following year, they purchased the restaurant for 45000 we wanted to get the restaurant up and running for six months before adding the Sideshow Fit program, Jim remembers. In April 2010, we opened the King's Restaurant for lunch. That summer, we added dinner. There were two aspects of our training and discipleship program in which each person received on-the-job training, Jim explained. We also closed for three hours each day, and during that time, we teach Bible studies and discipleship training. Not everyone they took in met with success in the year program, but three people graduated after their first year. There were people who disappeared after getting their first paycheck, said Jim. Some started the program and then went back to the streets. In 2011, Jim and Karen started Restoring Place Church, which meets in the restaurant. Most of the congregation is people we meet on the streets, says Karen. In one Sunday at service, for example, while a former American Idol contestant led worship, a young woman sat in the front row drinking alcohol. I told one of our ushers to ask her to leave if she was going to drink. She left, guzzling her drink as she went. After a while, I asked the usher to find the woman and tell her she could come back if she didn't drink. She came back and sat in the front row. The scriptures that best describe our ministry is Proverbs 14.4, the Passion Translation. The only clean stable is an empty stable. So if you want the work of an ox and to enjoy an abundant harvest, you'll have a mess or two to clean up. Our ministry is real and raw, and I wouldn't have it any other way, says Jim. Jesus said when we minister to the least of these, it is as though we are ministering to him. I believe he meant that then, and he still means it today. In addition to the King's Kitchen, the Discipleship Program, and Restoring Place Church, Jim and Carrie have also started the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center, modeled after the one in Los Angeles. They met the needs of people by providing food, clothing, and free resources to those suffering Poverty, addiction, and abuse. They help find solutions to homelessness, hunger, and joblessness. On Friday nights in Uptown Charlotte, the smell of chili cheese dogs was, was in the air. People from the King's Kitchen and the Dream Center walked the streets giving away 160 chili cheese dogs. As the food draws, the people volunteers introduce them to Jesus, minister to them, and invite them to a Bible study. On Saturday mornings, Dream Center staff and 300 to 400 volunteers a month show up in rough neighborhoods 
where they adopt a block. This isn't a shorter term ministry. They show up on the adopted block every Saturday without fail and do whatever is needed from mowing lawns and making repairs to providing groceries and praying for people. They become friends according to the FBI. The Adopt-A-Block program carries out in different cities across the U.S. is the most effective revitalization program they ever seen. These people become dear to us, Karen explains. When one of them overdoses, when they have no food to feed their children or their slums, Lord licks, kicks them to the curb for being five hours late on the rent, we care deeply. In the past five months, 18 families from the Adopt-A-Block program have disappeared. Developers buy the properties and they are displaced. We have no idea where they are, but there have been many success stories. Ronnie, for example, is a young man who had a hard life and needed a job. When a friend told him about King's Kitchen, he went through the ministry discipleship program, got his life back on track, and today is still actively involved with ministry. In fact, both Jim and Karen refer to him as the undisputed mayor of the kitchen. Another man, Hor Horace, was homeless when he came to King's Kitchen. He had a lot of issues to deal with, and I took him four years to go through the discipleship program. Today, he owns a cab, a car, debt-free, and he has his own apartment, says Karen. There was a woman here in Charlie who ran her prostitution and crack house, and a federal warrant was out for her arrest. A woman who lived down the street from the crack house started praying for her, as did members of a nearby church. Eventually, someone got a chance to witness to the woman and told her the glorious truth that her sins had been forgiven, that she had been redeemed from the curse of the law, and that she f was free to live under God's blessing. As a result, the woman received Jesus and eventually came to the king's kitchen and attended Bible study five times a week. She later attended and graduated from the Charlie campus of Cherished Bible College. Today, she's an ordained minister, a powerful woman of God who fills our pulpit when we're out of town, Karen added. Jim and Karen's goal and purpose has always been to tell the people the truth. They were members of a denominational church when doctors told them there was no hope for Olivia. They never been told that by Jesus' stripes she's already been healed. No one had ever mentioned to them the truth about that just as Jesus had redeemed us from sin, he's also bore our sickness. Later, Jim discovered that his grandfather had known the truth. A Pentecostal holiness preacher in 1905 had been sick and was healed. Everyone in his family thought he was crazy, but he has underlined Mark 11, 23, and 24 in his Bible and determined to stand on God's word for his healing. Many years later, someone shared those same verses with Jim and Karen. They had listened and believed God's word as Charles Capps taught the truth and prayed for Olivia, who is alive today at 26 years old. When we learned the truth, we were so hungry for the word of God that we sat in front of the television with duct tape covering the antenna so we could watch the BOB broadcast. Every salvation, healing, and deliverance in our ministry was fruit to KCM. 
and our pastor, Bishop James C. Hesh, we're just to be thankful to God that we are partnered with a ministry of integrity that tells us the truth around the world. As they faithfully work to wipe out the debt incurred as a result of 9-11, being faithful to tithe and give as they go, Jim and Karen purpose to build their ministry at the same philosophy. Tell the truth, nothing but the truth. The word of the Lord. And that was a story from Believer's Voice of Victory magazine written by the founder by Melanie Henry. Sounds pretty good, don't it? Beautiful story of God.